Welcome to Chasing Hermes, the pursuit of Mercury, with your hosts, Sean and Jason. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Chasing Hermes. I'm your host, Sean. And I am your co-host, Jason. Glad you could make it, everybody. Well, everybody, we have uh, finally returned to our bodies in order to bring you this week's edition of Chasing Hermes. So, Jason, what's on your mind today? Well, Sean, you, uh, I consider you a spiritual person. Would, would, that, be, would that be correct? Sure, I would, yeah. I'd say. I, I aspire to spiritual attainment. Right. And you're a person who puts a lot of uh, time and effort into your spiritual pursuits. Uh, yes, yeah. Probably yes. to the detriment of the rest of my social life, but uh, yes, I do. Well, you have a lot of friends online. <laughs> right. <laughs> You're all my friends. Um, <laughs> well, tell me this. Did you ever um, come across a time when it seemed to you like your options were severely restricted and you had to pass through, um, let's say, a time that was unpleasant and discomforting in order to to progress that all other options would lead you to stagnation yeah jason definitely have had those experiences where you know in order to progress further down the rabbit hole as it were it seemed as though there were more things that i was required to to give up from my my material life in order to aspire for a greater embrace of the spiritual life and at times, this is very disconcerting. Yeah. It's almost an identity crisis, if you will. But yeah, definitely. And how did you feel when you went through these times? You know, I would say it's definitely a time of questioning your purpose, questioning why you're doing the things that you're doing, why you've chosen this path. And also, in a sense, it's it's almost as a grieving process for the things that uh, seemingly need to be left behind. Yeah. Yeah. And during these times when you were going through this sort of bottleneck experience, were you ever confronted with, let's say, your own shortcomings in a way that was overwhelming? Yeah, definitely. I think that what happens is that as we are progressing on the spiritual path, we truly become acutely aware of our own shortcomings, our own failures, our own bondage to mortality, if you will. Yeah. And in this process, we realize that, you know, hey, you know, these things that I'm now seemingly required to give up in order to progress are things that, you know, I greatly identified with my own sense of self, my sense of well-being, my own sense of worth. But at the same time, you know, as we are ascending that mountain of spiritual initiation, we become aware of just what aspects of ourselves are not fully in line with our true highest aspirations. So there's a great sense of, of fear that can come over us when we first encounter this realization, when we realize, hey, there are failures in my personality, failures in my current desires, um, you know, failures of aspiration that are going to prevent me from continuing the ascent up this mountain. And when we realize that, you know, some of these things are going to have to be elevated, stripped away, transmuted, you know, whichever term we choose, 
you know, that can be a, a life-changing moment. And, and that awareness really does stir an uncomfortable sense of, of dread and fear, almost as though we're approaching our own funeral. That's exactly it. You know, I've, I've gone through those experiences myself you know, several times in the past. And I like what you say about going to your own funeral because it, it feels almost like you become aware of your own mortality. Um, whereas yeah. when you're on a spiritual high, if you want, uh, I don't like that expression, but let's say that when everything is hunky-dory. Sure, when it's all roses and peaches and cream. Absolutely. Then <laughs> you, f- you feel eternal. You feel like you're going to live forever. But right, yeah. at these times that we're talking about now, you become very, very aware, painfully aware of not only your own, let's say, spiritual and, and personal limitations, but also your own temporal limitation that yeah. you only occupy this world for a certain time. Right. And that's, that's tough crap, I'd say. It's tough, tough crap. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's the awareness that sacrifice is required. And, yeah. You know, but for the hermeticist, that sacrifice truly is a self-sacrifice. And, yeah. and it's, yeah. you know, in that sense of saying, all right, now, you know, this is the real deal. I have to give of myself in order to progress. And, you know, that can be very challenging at times, you know, when the honeymoon is over. In researching this uh, topic, I, I was reminded of, of a passage in um, a great book called Zanoni. You may have heard of it. <laughs> yes, I have heard of it. <laughs> well, for those of our listeners who haven't heard of it, um, it was a book that was published in the uh, mid-1800s by mm-hmm. um, an English author called Sir Bulver Lytton. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. probably most famous uh, in the world of English literature for being championed the worst writer ever. Um, wow. And uh, I think he got <laughs> this sort of uh, reputation because he was the one who actually started a novel with the words, it was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> um, and th- he's that, that guy? That, he's that guy. <laughs> you know, so when Snoopy, you know, sits on top of his little rooftop and, and, and writes his novels, you know, that's, that's Bulver Lytton right there. So let's, let's turn to his writings for inspiration. Well, I, I, that's just to say that he's a very dramatic uh, writer <laughs> right. and very romantic, yeah. I should say. Um, but Zanoni, mm-hmm. yeah. it really is a story of initiation uh, in different ways yeah. and the different stages of initiation. Um, and the different characters in the book are at different stages of their initiation. And, and the, the sort of novice character is a young English kind of dandy called uh, Glyndon. Uh-huh. And he crosses paths with two, let's say, master alchemists or, or you know, sure. total, and com- total and complete masters of the sacred arts. Right. And he begins his initiatory process. He's residing in a castle, and he decides to perform a ritual for which he is simply not ready. Oh. The ritual actually involves an apparition that comes in kind of a, a, a cloud of incense and smoke. Mm-hmm. And the creature speaks to him and says, Thou hast entered the immeasurable region. I am the dweller of the threshold. And that's pretty much all that he needs to say before hmm, Glyndon yeah. is out the door and doesn't want to do any uh-huh. spiritual work after that at all. He just He's just so terrified that he's basically blown his top. 
Ah, yeah. Because he wasn't ready for this experience, um, this dweller on the threshold. Yeah. And this, this description really took. Later, you'll find variations on this theme in other types of literature. For example, Rudolf Steiner, the, um, the founder of Anthroposophy, famously writes about it in his book, Knowledge of the Higher Worlds and Its Attainments. Hmm. Um, and he calls it the guardian on the threshold. And it's basically the same idea that your fears and your own karmic backpack mm -hmm. can take on uh, a form, a human form of its own, and that it meets you at one of these bottlenecks in your life to test you. Yeah, it's like these authors are capturing the idea of, you know, the personified accuser. Yeah, exactly. As we rise higher and higher up that mountain of initiation, you know, with each rung of the ladder, it's as though we will be tested to determine if our strength can endure the next rung of the ladder. I mean, I know that we have to have many listeners that have had spiritual experiences that have just been mind-blowing for them. And, you know, other listeners that know that, you know, there's definitely limits to how real they truly want the mystical arts to become for them. And, you know, we have to always have some mechanism uh, established in our spiritual upbringing that will test the endurance of our strength. Right, that will test our ability to endure what is behind the next doorway. You know, you bring up a good point there. I think when we're starting out on any spiritual path, we seek enlightenment in some form or shape. And we have various ideas of what that enlightenment might look like. Yeah. But we can be darn sure that true enlightenment isn't like in the fairy tales. It's not <laughs> going to be like you expect it to be. No. It's probably going to be very stark yeah. and very intimidating to someone who has not made himself a fitting mirror to reflect this grand truth of the universe. Yeah, I like the alchemical analogy, that we are all vessels that can contain light. Yeah. But there's only a certain amount of light that each of us can hold within us before it will crack and shatter, right? So there's almost the sense that with every step we take, the vessel has to be prepared to receive an even greater amount of the light, which is, you know, beyond. Yeah, I think that's very true. If we're not properly prepared, if the strength of our vessel can't contain that brilliance of divine light, then it truly can crack and it can shatter. And, you know, I think that there are plenty of examples of aspiring mystics and occultists who, who may have extended their reach beyond what they were capable of dealing with and who, you know, really just went insane, crazy, or self-deluded. I think you can really crack your vessel yeah. by applying too much pressure to it, too much spiritual pressure. Right. And when that happens, I think your personality may in fact crack. Yeah, and I think this is the the idea that has been, you know, codified in various initiatic orders that exist today, you know. You know, this initiatic system that is almost like rungs of a ladder so that, you know, the the aspirant is prepared to lift the veil slightly, step by step, at each uh, rung of the ladder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well said. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about the accuser. Yeah. You mentioned the accuser before. Who is he to you? My best well, friend. 
Right. I think that, you know, the, the concept of the accuser is, again, that aspect that is, to some degree, harmonious with our higher self. Yeah. Although it's definitely going to feel as though it's coming from the nether regions. It's, it's going to feel sinister and evil because it's reflecting all of the darkest aspects of ourselves. It's as though it is the personification of our own shadow. Right. And that's a psychological term that is commonly adopted, is that the shadow is kind of the side of your own personality that you simply don't want to see. Right. Right. And that there is a light in your person, but that light also casts a shadow, which we are, we, we may or may not be aware of. Yeah. And, you know, we can see this in individuals. You can see it in groups. You can see it in institutions. Yeah. You know, everything that aspires to shine light is going to cast some sort of shadow. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be a shadow that the accuser in us is going to magnify and bring to our attention. And it's almost that aspect of self that's asking us, are you truly worthy? Are you truly prepared? And can you endure the trials? Yes, exactly. And like you say, every organization has a shadow. The church has a shadow. Your government has a shadow. Your school has a shadow. Um, And when you first realize this, especially if you've, you've gone through a kind of falling in love with an yeah. organization be it a political party or or you know your your local community right when you realize that there's a shadow it, you feel betrayed you feel you feel as though you've shared beds with a pig <laughs> um and that's also not true your your rosy colored glasses where you only focus on the positive things that's not true yeah if you only focus on the negative things that's not true either mm-hmm. um And the truth lies not in between, but it encompasses all of these things as a composite. Right. Um, But there are times where the shadow can actually help us move forward, where it's not just a symbol of everything that's wrong with a person or an organization, but where it actually serves to forward you and increase the pressure around you to shoot you, propel you forward. Right. It, right? it brings to attention our own limitations. You know, it, exactly. it brings to our attention those things that are holding us back. Yeah. And if we can learn to transmute them, then we can move forward. It's kind of like the difference between having a bunch of gunpowder and and building a bomb, right? Mm-hmm. Where that just yeah. blows everything right. up in a destructive force. Or if you form it into a rocket that can actually lift you up. Oh, yeah. You know, that's, it's the same force, but it's just applied differently. Oh, right. And that's how, you know, that's a very simple analogy of how this force of the shadow can actually be turned and tamed in order to produce something good. Right. We can either allow it to drag us down into the confusion of thinking that, that we are our shadows, or we can see it as just that, an accuser, and rise above it, you know, transmute it and and become something greater. So what are some of the lessons that we can learn from our dweller on the threshold or our (laughs) accuser? What can we learn from this experience? Well, I think first and foremost, it allows us to see you know, what are we truly afraid of? I mean, one of the yeah. one of the guarantees of the occult community and esoteric practices is that at one point or another, everyone that comes to you is going to say, I am not afraid of anything. You know, there's always that period where, you know, all of us think that there is just nothing that could 
fill us with terror, nothing that could bring us to our knees. But And that's good. That's a foreshadowing of, of a later stage, I think, you know, when you truly do become undaunted. But True, nobody, yeah. Nobody is really there. <laughs> but, but usually what happens is that the reason why we're saying that we're not afraid of anything is because we're not looking inside of ourselves. Yeah. Because yeah. that's where we would find most of the things that we're afraid of, you know. I'm, if I'm we were f- truly looking at our shadow, we would know exactly what we're afraid of because yes. it would tell us very clearly. <laughs> right, yeah. And it's interesting that, you know, many experiences of this dweller on the threshold uh, are described as sheer experiences of terror. Absolute and utter terror, yeah. yeah. But then again, everybody who's on this particular path wants their magic to work, wants their prayers to work. They want, you know, mental processes to have an effect in the physical world, right? And what if that wish is actually fulfilled? Mm. What are you going to do? You think that's (laughs) going to be awesome? It's scary. It really (laughs) is. You know, and and, and, and we have to be very, very gradually uh, become accustomed to to the reality of this. You know, I... I, I think of some of the things that, you know, experiences that you and I may have shared. And, you know, I think back to my neophyte self, as it were, you know, just aspiring to be this spiritual uh, seeker and to think, all right, what if I would implant some of the later experiences into the earlier me? And just through the power of my own imagination, I can see, you know, the look of terror, fear, and, you know, yeah. just utter disbelief at, you know, experiencing something that is beyond what I or you would have been ready for. And I was very scared at the time to follow in the footsteps of those who had gone before me, to see what they had gone through, right. and to see the, the personal sacrifice that they had to make in their own lives was very scary to me, but I went yeah. through it anyway, right? because it was done in a gradual fashion. Do you think the accuser, the personal accuser, can be seen as your own personal devil? I think that, you know, for for many of us, that's exactly the experience that it is. You know, it yeah. is, as some, even our listeners have described, the truest presence of evil they've ever right. experienced. You know, it's as though every way that someone can describe the devil or Satan or the accuser is exactly how they experience this, this shadow of, you know, the dweller on the threshold. You know, especially to the magician, I think it's it's only natural that, you know, we experience this as some externalized personification, right? I mean, as occultists, as esotericists, as hermeticists, we are familiar with communing with external personalities, you know, like angels and, and deity and, and things of that nature, mm-hmm. that, you know, it, it would seem natural that this personification of our own shadow w- would be our experience, the idea of the accuser, or Hashaithan, I think he's called in, in the Old Testament, was kind of like if you imagine a court being held in God's palace, if you mm-hmm. want. Okay. Um, yeah. And that there would be a defense lawyer and a prosecuting lawyer, and, and the accuser would be this prosecutor. Right. Uh, and he would basically point out all the flaws and all the, all the bits and pieces that we normally stick away in our shadows. Right. And what's interesting about Satan and his role of the accuser is that he, in that case, is actually forwarding the divine plan, and that he's actually there, even though he is accusing you, 
in some way, shape, or form, he is actually <laughs> on God's side, and conversely, also on your side. And that's where the dweller on the threshold becomes the guardian of the threshold. Because, oh, right, yeah. Because the, I mean, we're talking analogies here, of course, but sure. in your own personal microcosm, this part of you that points at all your flaws and all your weaknesses is at the same time trying to protect you from breaking at the next step of the journey, right? Right. He's trying to hold you back, to hold up a sword basically and say, here but no further until you have purified yourself to be sufficiently prepared to go on to the next stage in your development. Right. It's like a a built-in safety mechanism, you know, of the universe that, Mm -hmm. you know, allows us to attain the highest aspiration of spirituality that we can obtain at that moment, but then to to give us the mechanisms and the awareness Mm. of what needs to be elevated, what needs to be changed inside of us in order to to grow in strength. Exactly. one of my favorite analogies here is the idea of the tempering of a sword. Yeah. Right? If you if you think of every man, woman, and child as a tool of the divine, right? And that, that we are to become sharp, finely tuned instruments in order to, you know, win the battle of the day, then, you know, we are as swords that need tempering. And this tempering process to the blacksmith is a continual heating and pounding and then a cooling and then heating and pounding and cooling and this can be a very extreme physical process to to the steel of the blade but in the end it tempers it so that it becomes unbreakable and i think that that's exactly the process that's going on in our own spiritual development where you know there's sometimes when you know the metals inside of us become superheated so that they can become malleable there are times when we feel like we're being beaten with a hammer that you know as malleable we're we're being you know transformed and then there's times when we're just thrusted into the cooling waters right. and and although this can seem extreme for us you know in the end the product is is again that finely tempered strong, endurable strength of the sword. So what do you think uh, a person who has become tempered in this way is like? Do you think he can resist fear? <laughs> I think that, you know, the the aspirant who has become completely tempered, you know, all, yeah. all of the metals as, as shiny as can be, um, I think in that sense... The fear may be experienced, but in that experience, it becomes instantly recognized for what it is. And therefore, what that fear is revealing is used in order to transmute the aspirant. That the fear itself becomes a force that can transmute you further. Yes, the fear itself becomes an indicator of the very next transformation that needs to be undertaken. Here's what I think. I don't disagree with you. What do you think, Jason? I I don't disagree with you at all. But (laughs) but here's what I think in my little mind. Uh And that is that we only fear the unknown. That once something becomes known, it loses its grip of terror upon Mm -hmm. us. Right. Right. If if you want to be feared, you want to have an air of uncertainty around you. Right, yeah. We are much more afraid of the things that lurk in our shadow 
than we are of the things that are being illuminated by the light. Right, yeah. So in order to overcome the things that we're afraid of, we need to allow the light to shine upon those those aspects of our lives, if we're talking about our own shadow now. Absolutely. Um, and so in that sense, we need to actually move to a state where we are more fully immersed in the light, and therefore we are not so afraid. Yeah. Um, and in that sense, fear is the indicator that you are simply not ready. By that, I don't mean that we mustn't be afraid, but that the fear is the acid test that there is still a lot of work to do. True, yeah. I mean, it's important to understand that fear is, in its core reptilian sense, a physiological response. And it's possible to experience fear, experience dread, experience that fight-or-flight symptom hmm. without allowing it to uh, to affect... Dictate your... your your emotions and your actions. Right, yeah, without yeah. allowing it to to completely affect our sense of, of personhood or our sense of identity yeah. or our sense of place in the world. But far too often we use fear as an indication that, oh, clearly this thing that I'm afraid of must be objectively the real thing that's out to get me. You know, fear is an indication that there is a monster, that somehow right. there's something to be afraid of. And and I think it's the fear of that thing which is causing the fear, which, as you say, we don't really even know about, which causes our own sense of, of downfall and dread. Oh, no, I've gone cross-eyed. Uh, <laughs> what you're saying is... Uh, all we fear is fear itself. Be, sum it up. <laughs> we have yeah. nothing to fear but fear itself. Yeah, exactly. Um, you bring up an interesting point in that sometimes, because we're afraid of something, it may actually seem more real than it really is. Yeah. Because the fear makes it real. That's what you're saying. Exactly, yeah. If I all of a sudden get a sense of fear in the dark of my bedroom and my imagination says that that little movement I saw in the corner of my room was actually this monster that came out of my closet, then, you know, that fear becomes more justifiable. And it and becomes misguided. It becomes misguided, it's, right, yeah. because now I think that there's truly a monster, um, you know, which is just going to add to the fear, when right. in reality, um, you know, the monster can sometimes be nothing more than, than a weak shadow. A friendly ghost. A friendly ghost. <laughs> Hello, Casper. True knowledge and the true wisdom belongs to those who are truly fearless. And that is to say that fear has lost its hold on them. They're still capable of feeling fear, but it doesn't affect them. It is an experience that passes mm. through their mind, but does not remain. I think what you're referring to here is the virtue of courage and fortitude. Right. Right. And, yeah. and it's said that, you know, bravery is not expressed by those who do not experience fear, but bravery is those who take action in spite of fear. Yeah. And perhaps, you know, this is one of the mechanisms of the tempering of the steel. Right. Right. Is the tempering of these virtues within us that as we encounter fear more regularly and we choose in a courageous manner to overcome that fear and to take actions in spite of that fear, then those virtues grow within us and therefore expand our vessel and our capacity to contain the light. 
We talked earlier about how we have to purify ourselves in order to move further along. And I think, wouldn't you say that that's an integral part to the theurgical arts that we're trying to follow? Right. It's almost as though one of the paradoxes is that, you know, when we begin, we think that the deeper we progress into the spiritual mysteries, the, the higher we obtain into the light of God, into the light of the divine, that somehow all of these negative experiences, all of these experiences of the shadow and of the accuser will leave us, right? And so yeah. sometimes this leads us to look to, you know, our spiritual mentors and and cast stones at them because we see them suffering trials that, that we ourselves are suffering. So we think, hey, oh, yeah. you know... They, we fight the shadows in other people all the time. Right, yeah. And, Absolutely. You know, so, but the reality of it is, is that the higher you elevate, you know, up the tree of life, as it were the more acutely aware you become of your own shortfalls, right? Yeah, And it's as though in our eternal pursuit of of spiritual purity, we become hyper-aware of the the smallest speck of dirt, right? They say white is the easiest color to stain. And, And that becomes, you know, very true on a spiritual path because... One thing that you notice with a spiritual aspirant is that as they continue on the path, they begin to encounter this accuser on a more frequent basis rather than a less frequent basis. Yeah. Right? So it's as though their shadow maybe comes smaller and smaller, but it becomes much more significant to the aspirant than the shadow may have been at one time. Right. Your interaction with the shadow becomes more intense and more frequent the the further along the path you go. Right, and I think that yeah. perhaps this yeah. may be you know one of the you know the hermetic ways of expressing you know the occult meaning behind the fear of God. Right, that yeah. that we are fearing our own spiritual failures. Right, that that our own. Uh, fear becomes manifested in a fear of not being able to take that next step in our spiritual attainment. And so constantly, I think, you know, we we begin to experience this accusatory shadow that that begins to follow us, reflecting even the most minor of imperfections, and oftentimes major. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to those then that have truly attained this fearless state... The hermetic literature does promise a lot. Mm. Um, and it's interesting. I was reading the Corpus Hermeticum. Oh, yeah. As one does. As one does, yes. As they're chasing Hermes. <laughs> I was chasing Hermes in uh, the Corpus Hermeticum, and I came across a passage here. In, uh, it's a dialogue between Nous and mm-hmm. Hermes. And the Nous is basically telling Hermes that you can actually emulate the mind of God and that in doing so, you have to imagine yourself being absolutely unlimited and and limitless and encompassing all of the universe Hmm. and all of time, present, past, and future. And I quote, And when you have understood all of these at once, times, places, things, qualities, and quantities, then you can understand God. But if you shut your soul up in the body and abase it and say, I understand nothing, I can do nothing, I fear the sea, I cannot go up to heaven, 
I do not know what I was, I do not know what I will become, then what have you to do with God? Wow. To be ignorant of the divine is the ultimate vice, but to be able to know, to will, and to hope is the straight and easy way leading to the good. Wow, that's a, that's a very profound expression, I think, to, to wrap up everything that we've been describing in the show. I mean, we can take this experience of the accuser, right, of the dweller of the threshold, and, yeah. and we can allow this, this fear and this doubt to, to drag us down and to, to propel us off of the mountain, as it were, and back into the valley. Yeah. Or we can use it to propel us even further upward in, in passion and, and love for the divine. And an understanding. But it's not an easy thing to do. No. And we must have compassion for those that fall by the wayside. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Amen. I guess that's that about wraps it up for the dweller. <laughs> what a depressing ending. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> and on that cheerful note, thank you everybody for listening to this episode. <laughs> I uh, I hope you learned something, and I hope that uh, you do or don't have to meet your dweller on the threshold. But if you do... Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. <laughs> All right. You take care, everyone. And Jason, we will see you next time on Chasing Hermes. Indeed. Visit our website at www.chasinghermes.com or send us an email at info at To inquire about the Western mystery tradition, please visit www.western-mysteries.com.